I am not Kevin Webb, as you heard. My name's Aaron Wine. I'm the youth pastor here. Plenty of you know me because a lot of you were with me just a little while ago before graduation. You guys have been in the book of Daniel for the summer, which is fantastic. And it's, it's actually really funny. Um, a couple of years ago, when Michael Hill was the, the college pastor here, um, I think actually the last time I taught in the college ministry, uh, Michael was like, hey man, something came up and we're going through this series and could you fill in for me? And before I asked what it was, I said, well, sure. Because as an intern, you take as many opportunities to teach as you can, right? And if I remember correctly, I taught on Daniel 9 through 11 in one sitting to this group. It is probably totally fine if none of you remember that, right? Um, We covered a ton of ground. And so today we've just got Daniel 11. Hopefully we can get a little bit more understanding, a little bit more truth, a little bit more application from just this section of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Daniel chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let's just put our cards on the table, okay? Uh, uh, Daniel, Kevin and I are probably 98% in agreement on most theological issues, right? If you've hung out with me for any amount of time, you've hung out with Kevin any amount of time, really, if you've hung out with Kevin, you understand that there are things for which we think very deeply about Scripture and about doctrine, and Lord willing, I'm following in uh, his footsteps or the footsteps of men like him. But that is not to say that we're in complete agreement. So let me just set this out as a caveat. Daniel is kind of a weird book, right? Like, kind of difficult. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That makes sense. I saw a man, and his head was gold, and his body was iron and steel, and his feet were clay. Not as clear. Like, like, let's just go ahead and agree that there are many Jesus-loving, Bible-believing gospel-centered Christians who view the content of this book differently. And that's okay. I don't think that we're in disagreement, Kevin and I, um, but most, if not all, of what I talk about should line up with whatever he's taught in the last couple of weeks. But if you find yourself questioning what I'm saying and going, I don't know how that lines up with what Kevin taught, or I don't know how that makes sense with what I've heard before, that's all right. You, You can ask me later, you can ask Kevin, and he will definitely get you straightened out to believe what is true and right, uh, because I defer to him, his ministry, not, not mine. I'm on his turf. I'm in his neighborhood, so I'm wearing, I'm wearing different colors, right? So what's going on? Uh, Daniel has been serving in Babylon. This is just an overview of the book, overview of the life of Daniel. He's been serving in Babylon faithfully, in captivity, a Jew that was taken out by Nebuchadnezzar, and he has modeled his whole life in captivity what Humble confidence looks like. Confidence in his God, confidence in his faith, confidence in how he is supposed to act in the midst of a foreign land, serving a foreign king, under a foreign government, amidst a foreign people. Confident and yet humble. Not a jerk about it, right? And that alone has massive applications for us in the world that we live in, correct? Because we live among foreign people As Christians, we live in a foreign nation. This is not our home. We serve a foreign king and a foreign government. We are under their authority as instituted by God. Daniel gives us a great way to live in the midst of a land like ours. In Daniel, uh, he's 
He's been serving Babylon faithfully. He's been answering people's dreams. He's been serving the kings. He's been shown to have wisdom. It's, it's all good. The first couple of chapters of Daniel seem pretty clear. And then he just starts like tripping, right? Like kind of out of nowhere, he starts seeing things that we don't see. He starts seeing visions and it freaks him out. All he knows to do is appeal to God and hopefully get some relief. So in Daniel chapter 9, he figures out that Jeremiah's prophecy about Babylonian captivity is coming to an end, right? Seventy years is the time, and that time is up. And then Gabriel, an angel, gives him some more visions to clarify what's going on. In Daniel chapter 10, he gets more visions. This is hopefully what you learned about last week. And Daniel gets, quote, encouraged by one who was like a man and yet spoke with authority. Now, uh, I don't know if Kevin really made a, a stand one way or the other. Some people think that that's a pre-incarnate Jesus. Some people think that's just an angel of the Lord. We don't really know. But what we do know is that the vision is divine. It's from God. So whatever Daniel is about to hear should be an encouragement to him from God. Which is kind of weird because as we'll see in this chapter, Daniel 11 is really kind of depressing. Like, I don't know if you've read ahead, there's just not like a whole, like you're not going to read that chapter on your own and go, man, I feel so much better. Like, man, I just, my heart is at rest because of all of this war. Right? My, my, I can go to sleep at night knowing that this king who is contemptible will bring about the abomination of desolation. It really soothes the soul. Right? So how is that an encouragement? Because that's the point of these visions from Daniel chapter 10. And that's like our own day, is it not? Like, let's turn on the news together. And it's only going to be a short amount of time before we see something or hear something that will get us frustrated or upset or sad just about humanity. It's not going to take long. But here's the point. While there's plenty of bad, evil, wicked things in the world today, just like there were bad, evil, wicked things in Daniel's day, there is someone who still reigns who is still in complete control and is still bringing about his glorious purposes. So here's the main idea. If you're taking notes, you've got like note sheets in front of you. I don't have anything on the screen. Sorry. Um, When things like this happen, I I like to quote Brother Al who says, I remember a time when the Holy Spirit moved without PowerPoint. (laughs) He's right. It's helpful. It's not necessary, but here's... Here's my message in a sentence. No matter how difficult the world gets, the word always stands faithful and true. I'll say that again. No matter how difficult the world gets, the word always stands faithful and true. We're going to see this in two sections of the text and in three points. So two over three all my drummers. That's a joke. It failed. It's all right. Point number one, the world wobbles. It's not a dance. The world wobbles. Remember, Daniel is supposed to be being encouraged by this angel. And why does he need to be encouraged? Because he's confused. Let's remember, Daniel figured out the prophecy of Jeremiah and thought, In 70 years, the captivity of Babylon for the Jews should be done. 
those 70 years are up. He did the prophetic math. Israel's exile should be completely over. They had been given the green light to rebuild the temple already. But almost immediately, if you go read things like Nehemiah or Ezra, immediately when the temple is starting to be rebuilt, they face opposition from different parties all around them, from within and without. The Jews would think that God's displeasure would be gone and only blessing would remain. So what's the deal? Daniel's trying to make sense of the fact that although the captivity and judgment is supposed to be over, they are still facing persecution and difficulty. Why are they facing so much trouble? And the answer is because the world is broken. The whole world is broken. And the reality is, is that things will get better and they also get worse. G.K. Chesterton is a British thinker, brilliant, says this about the world. He says, the world is what the saints and the prophets saw it was. It's not merely getting better or merely getting worse. There is one thing that the world does. It wobbles. Left to itself, it does not get anywhere. Though if helped by real reformers of the right religion and philosophy, it may get better in many respects and sometimes for considerable periods. But in itself, it is not a progress. It is not even a process. It is the fashion of this world that passeth away. Life in itself is not a ladder. It's a seesaw. Now what Chesterton means is that as we look through the corridor of history, we will see in many respects the world gets better, right? None of you have polio, for example. That's a good thing, right? Like none of us have the plague. Good thing. A lot of us have access to healthcare and medicine. I mean, all of us, if we live in America, right? In many respects, the world today is much better than it was. We live in a democratic republic, not tyranny. That's good. That's, that's better than what it could be. But also, in many respects, it is worse. Virtue is no longer a thing for which men seek out with their lives. Now it's status or independence or wealth. Character is no longer a thing for which people laud one another and honor one another. It's draconian and old-fashioned and has no real place in the modern world. So in many ways, the world is better many ways the world is worse. So let's read Daniel chapter 11 and see that in the text. Starting in verse 1. It says, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Let's just pause there. The messenger is showing Daniel the future. 
Remember, Daniel's trying to be encouraged by this angel, and the vision that he shows him to encourage him is a vision of the future. And what he is telling him is that kingdoms are going to rise and fall. That has not changed throughout history, and it will not change. And yet, he tells them what is coming with incredible detail if we have eyes to see. So let's just see very quickly, verse 2. Uh, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. Pause. Three kings came in the Persian Empire, and then the fourth was a man named Xerxes, who, if you know your Bible, was the husband of Queen Esther, Persian king, one of the most powerful kings of the Persian Empire. In verse 2, Daniel is being told that this Xerxes will come to power in Persia and reign over, in a way, reign over his kingdom in a way that the ones before him did not. Verse 3, he or in verse 2b, rather, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then, verse 3, a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Uh, most biblical scholars, and uh, myself included, not as a biblical scholar, just somebody who agrees, is that this is talking about Alexander the Great. The Persian king is going to stir up his armies against Greece, but then a king will arise there who will dominate. And if you know anything about world history, you know that there is not a conqueror like Alexander. I mean, in his 20s, had an empire that was greater than anything the ancient world had known. Emperor of Greece. And yet, verse 4, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. If you know, History tells us that Alexander the Great died at a very young age. He did not have posterity to give over his kingdom to. So in the best interest of the empire, his empire was split among four of his generals. That's the four winds of heaven. What verse 4 talks about, his kingdom being divided. Verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. Verse 5 helps us to set up the nation of the south. And as we'll see in verse 6, after some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Throughout history, in this section, after the Greek Empire was at its strongest, you had the, the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. And those south and north are in relation to Israel. So the Ptolemies ruled the Greek Empire that we know now as Egypt. And the Seleucids ruled the empire that was part of the Greek Empire that we now know as Syria. So we have the king of the south and the king of the north reigning and making alliances. And in comparison to the other two generals, these kingdoms flourished. Now, why do we need to know all of these things? And why does Daniel need to know all these things? Because God is describing world history to Daniel before any of it comes to pass. And all the turmoil that comes with the succession of kingdoms and kings. The point is that he lives in the midst of turmoil and opposition. And the future will continue to be turmoil and opposition. 
and he needs to know, and you need to know, that that is not necessarily a sign of God's judgment. The fact that we live in a time of turmoil, the fact that we live in a wobbly world is not a sign necessarily of God's derision and judgment. It's the reality that we live in a sinful world. And that wobbly world left to itself is always at odds with the people of God and his purposes. Sometimes we look for symbols and signs in things that God never intends for us to see. And if you look at your circumstances and constantly evaluate your relationship with God based on your surrounding circumstances, you will be, as the scripture says, tossed to and fro. That's no way to live. And the angel is reminding Daniel and reminding you and me, we live in a fallen world. The reality is sin has permeated everything. So just because you face opposition does not mean that your Lord is angry with you. Don't don't put that burden on your shoulders that he has not put on your shoulders. Jesus continues this trend in Matthew 24. You know it as the Olivet Discourse, also in Mark 13, where he talks about the coming wars and rumors of wars and the future events that will take place. Paul describes this as well in Romans 8, 20 20 through 22. He talks about all of creation groaning as though in birth pains, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, waiting for Jesus to return to make all things right. It's not just a historical irrelevant scenario for us. It is reality as it is right now. We live in a broken world. But it doesn't just wobble statically like the arm of a grandfather clock. It's not just constant wobble. As we'll see later in this chapter, the intensity of that wobbling is going to increase. So the second point I have is that the wickedness increases. The wickedness increases. Skip down to verse 21. Daniel is given a glimpse into the pattern of human history as we see, but evil is not only going to continue. Fallen kingdoms are not just going to replace itself. It's going to intensify. And that's the main thrust of the second half of Daniel chapter 11. Verse 21, as we're going to see, makes a shift from a long period of history, right? Daniel 11, 1 through 20 covers a lot of ground, centuries of world history. And then in verse 21, makes a very quick shift to a particular ruler in a particular time period. And what you and I need to know as Bible interpreters and as theologians, because we all are, is that time is an important literary device for the Hebrews. If you don't know, um, there's no comparative and superlative language for Hebrew to be used at. I mean, there's no good, better, best. Does that make sense in Hebrew? There, there's, there's not, there, that's cool, but that's cooler. That's hot, but that's hotter. No, no, no. They use different devices to show emphasis. One of the things they do is repetition, right? So for instance, in Genesis 1 and 2, when, when God tells Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. The original language is, if you eat of this tree, you will die, die. You really dead. Like super dead. 
You're not just dead. You're dead, dead, right? Or in Isaiah 6, one of the few times where something is repeated three times, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord of hosts. There's no more emphasis that a Hebrew writer could put than to repeat something three times. But another, another device they use is time. So for instance, you read Genesis, Genesis 1 through 12, or 1 through 11 covers centuries of history, right? And generations upon generations and generations. And then you get to Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, and from chapter 12 to chapter 50, you're in like a three, four generation period. And what Moses is telling you, and God is telling you with that kind of slowdown of time, is you need to pay attention to this family. Pay attention to what's happening here. And the same is true for Daniel, chapter 11. So let's read Daniel 11, verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty had not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And he, and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. And he shall do what neither his fathers nor his fathers' fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. He shall work his will, return to his land. Verse 29, at the time appointed, notice that is the second time we've read that phrase. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back, pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand that for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Let's stop there. This text refers to a very particular ruler in history, and his name is Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. You may have already heard of him from one of Kevin's previous messages in Daniel. He essentially came to power through deception. and You heard that in this text. He was not just any bad king. He was contemptible. He's especially wicked, and he hated the Jews. You read in this text, you heard in this text where he goes to fight the king of the south and returns. 
Once there was a rumor that went around that he had been killed in battle in Egypt when he went down to the south. And that rumor was particularly strong among the Jews. And so when he returned and caught wind of that rumor, his hatred towards the Jews amplified because they thought him a dead and unsuccessful king. This is expressed vividly as we just saw in verses 30 through 32. What we read as the abomination that makes desolate. He desecrates the temple in Jerusalem. He makes it into the shrine of a Greek god, offered profane sacrifices upon its altar, and then murdered thousands of Jews. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just just spitballing here. If I could think of a way to make someone's God the most angry, what I would probably do is go to their place of worship, desecrate it, worship to other gods in his place, offer sacrifices that are not permitted on that altar, and then slaughter his followers. That is the abomination that makes desolate. Abomination is the word that the Old Testament uses for the most egregious, grievous kinds of sin. It is an abomination that makes desolate. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes does. That's what verse 31 is talking about. This is the direction of an evil, wobbly world. It's not just captivity. Now it's desecration. Very quickly, just so you know, verse 36 through 39 may be a shift to another person. It says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. I'll just stop there. It's talking again about this king who makes himself like a god. And, and some scholars think that this is continuing to talk about Antiochus. Some people are thinking that this could be a future specific ruler who has yet to come upon the world scene. It kind of sounds like, if you want to turn there or write that down, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul is talking about the man of lawlessness who will come and make himself great. And so maybe, if your framework or system calls for this, Maybe Daniel 11, 36 through 39 and Thessalonians 2, 4 is talking about Antichrist. Like capital A, the Antichrist. Or it could be continuing to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. Or it could be talking about a personification of evil and opposition to Christ as the end approaches. And that's where I lean. I think prophecy often has a, a way for us to interpret it that is ideal throughout history so that we can understand there's always a king who makes himself great. There's always a a tyrannical ruler who tries to put down the people of God. There's always a beast, right, seeking to devour God's people. There's always a, a false prophet teaching things that sound right but aren't. Either way, it continues to establish the point. Wickedness is increasing. Things are getting better in some ways, but in other ways they are getting worse. How in the world would this be an encouragement to Daniel? Remember, that's the point of this chapter, to encourage Daniel. Because it sounds rough. 
That sounds terrible. What he's, what he's telling, what this angel is telling Daniel is, there's going to be some kings who come and kings who go, and there's also going to be this king that just like wrecks your temple and desecrates God's holy place and murders followers of God. Be encouraged. I think it's an encouragement because this vision reminds Daniel yet again that those current circumstances are not necessarily the result of God's judgment. Again, it's the reality of living in a broken world. And remember what I said that you heard over and over again. You heard this three times. Until the appointed time. Until the time appointed comes. Or until the appointed time. Or verse 35. Until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Over and over and over and over and over again. Over a hundred times in Daniel chapter 11, the verb will is used. Not may, not could, will. These things will come to pass. And we have rulers who are sinners, and we too live in a world of sin. And you and I know that all is not as it should be. We have circumstances in our life that aren't as it should be. But what those verbs and those phrases tell us is that they are not catching our Lord by surprise. They are not catching Him off guard. They are not outside of His sovereign rule. They are subject to his reign. What has been the undercurrent of this whole chapter? What you and I have been reading over and over again. And that's the third point. The word stands. The word stands. These things will come to pass. God has decreed and it will be so. He has been seated on his throne, reigning in supreme sovereignty over the affairs of men since creation. And the reason that Daniel can receive such a vision as encouragement is because God's grip on future events is as sure as his eternal perfections. There might be little kings running around desecrating and doing wicked things. There might be little kings running around making themselves great. But there is a true king with true authority who tells them where to go and what to do. Earlier, you heard Nebuchadnezzar say, this is the Lord of lords and God of kings. He is the one. God, the God of Israel is the one who puts kings up and sets kings down. God has given Daniel a glimpse of the next 400 years of history like he's reading the newspaper. It will be because God said it. His word is unbeatable, unshakable. It's impossible to stop, impossible to move, and it is certain. And this is not just the proclamation of Daniel. It's the resounding proclamation of all of Scripture. God's intentions for himself and for his creation will come to pass. 
And that might be a foundational, basic, like level one thing to believe, but you and I need to remember it because in our sober moments, it's easy to say, but in the midst of the circumstances of living in a broken world, it is difficult sometimes to remember. Like Joseph in Genesis 50, chapter 20, chapter 50, verse 20. When he looks to his brothers and said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. This does not catch God by surprise. This is a part of his sovereign decree. He's not just working with the cards that has been dealt to him. He deals the cards. Or Isaiah 43, 13. You have to turn there. You can just write it down. God says, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. Who can turn it back? That's the God of Scripture. His word is supreme. Or Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 115, like we just, like I read when we prayed. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or Acts 4, you have to turn there. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Peter is praying after being released from prison, saying, Oh Lord, you are the one who is sovereign, who led Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews to do what your hand had predestined to take place. You think about the most wicked, evil, heinous event in all of human history. It is the murder of the Son of God. And Acts 4, 27 and 28 tells us that is right in line with God's will. Same thing in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. By his wounds we are healed. 1 Timothy 6. Land in the plane, I promise. First Timothy six, verse thirteen. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And last but certainly not least, Romans 8, 28 a verse that all of us would do well to memorize. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, what does all this mean practically for us, brothers and sisters? Why did I just give you a junk ton of scriptures? 
Because you and I need to see and believe and get it deep down in our bones that God's providential hand is always trustworthy and always good. God's providence in your life is always trustworthy and it is always good. Now that does not free us from any mystery in our lives. We walk through valleys. That's a fact. We walk through fog. Faith is believing in what we cannot see with our eyes. I said this last week in my sermon on Be Still My Soul in the service on Sunday night. Just because you and I have a high view of God's sovereignty over His creation does not free us from the reality of grief and pain. But it helps us to remember that what we are going through is not meaningless. It is not accidental. It's not random. There is a good and kind and loving Father who is orchestrating all things for His glory and for your joy in eternity. Not your pleasure in the moment. Don't confuse those two things. Your pleasure in the moment is fleeting and a vapor in comparison to the rock of eternal joy that God promises you by his providence. He is bringing about his good, wise, and glorious purposes in the midst of a fallen, broken, and wobbly world. That is the encouragement to Daniel, and that is the encouragement to us. And even though the wicked try to shake their fists in rebellion, one day, Every knee will bow. And even though sinful and rebellious people live as though the scales of justice will never be balanced, the judge has promised to make things right. So the question that stands for all of us is this. Do you trust him? Do you trust him above all else? Do you know that God will settle the score once and for all at his glorious return? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross as your payment for sin? Or are you like the wicked kings of this prophecy in Daniel 11, believing that you are somehow in control of your world and accountable to no one? Are you still living like you're the king of your own world? Or do you believe that his word is sure, that it will stand, and that it will one day make all things new? Students, in just a couple of days, you're going to start class. I remember those days. And I remember even before they even start, there are reasons to be stressed out. So do you need encouragement? In your situation today, are the stresses of school or family or work or relationships or future goals or habits or other spheres of your life, have you feeling somehow distant from God's providential hand? It's a serious question that you and I should consider. Did we wake up and at some point in our preparation to celebrate the worship of our God on the Lord's Day, were we aware of God's providence in our life? Was that you this morning? Because he is just as sovereign and 
present in your life in this moment as when he was with Joseph or Isaiah or David or Paul or Jesus himself. We worship Emmanuel, God with us. We worship the King of kings who reigns over all. He sits on his throne and does whatever he pleases. And although suffering and persecution and turmoil may continue to rise against us, we know that God's word will stand, that his word is sure, and that he has given us great promises. He's promised to be with us. He's promised not to leave us. He's promised to work out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not your purpose. Not the one that you conjure up in your brain. His purpose. And so my prayer is that as you spend just a couple of minutes discussing this message, and as you think about the beginning of a new school year and a new semester, you would be willing to submit your plans and your purposes before the one who is actually in authority over your life. Let's pray together.